Matthew 18, verse 1, as we read, we remember that this is God's Word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. Well, let's turn to those verses in Matthew 18, page 985, entitled, The Greatest in the Kingdom of Heaven. We're thinking this morning about humility. Just this week, I, I was speaking to somebody in Scotland who was telling me of some trouble that a local church was experiencing, and they concluded by saying, relationships in the church can just be so challenging at times. And we all know that. We know that churches can be places where there are fights and arguments and grudges and all sorts of things. And sometimes these things start for the smallest of reasons. I remember hearing the true story of an American church that ended up in court in Dallas because a split had formed, and both groups had gone to law in order to lay claim to the building. And as the case was investigated, the cause of the split became public. The church had had a, a fellowship meal, and one member had been given a significantly larger piece of ham than the next member. And they had argued about this, and people had taken sides, and they had ended up in court, and of course, the media were all over it. So, relationships in church can be challenging at times, and one of the things that we know, and we should know, is that this is no surprise to the Lord Jesus Christ, because relationships amongst His disciples, the proto-church, as it were, were challenging at times. And the New Testament spends a fair bit of time teaching Christians how we should behave if we are to get on together. And one of the significant passages that, is, that does that is Matthew 18 that we have read earlier, a part of which we've read earlier this morning. 
Jesus is still up in the north of the country, it seems, around Galilee. He is soon to journey south to Judea and to the cross. And before he goes, he gathers his disciples together, and he teaches them in an extended way about relationships within the kingdom, within the church especially. And we're going to look at this over the next number of mornings. Well, Noble's with us next week, but over the following Sunday mornings. And I I really believe this is so, so important. We often pray in our prayer meetings that God will preserve our unity and will keep the devil from getting amongst us. We pray that. And if we are to be united and know some measure of harmony within our relationships as a fellowship, it will, because, it will be because we are obeying to some degree the teaching that Jesus gives us in these verses. Sometimes whenever we do our marriage preparation courses, I say to the couples as we work through a number of various issues, we, we, we say, look, you know, if, if you do most of what we look at here most of the time, you'll develop a strong and healthy marriage. And, and it's the same with this. If we do most of what we're looking at here most of the time, we will lightly find ourselves to be a strong fellowship. On the other hand, if we ignore this, it will not be long before we are in trouble. Uh, what I want you to think about is that think of that church in Dallas and remind yourself we are only one piece of ham away from disaster, okay? We're only one piece of ham away from disaster. That's my theme for this morning. Now, like so much of the, the teaching that Jesus gives us, there's a particular incident that brings it about, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is, as we said last time, uh, briefly last Sunday morning, this was not the disciples having a, a, a theological debate about something. This was them jockeying for position, calling shotgun on the kingdom. Who is going to be the second in command? Who's going to get the top jobs? It's pretty crass, but it's not the only time that it happens. The other Gospels record this incident and other occasions when similar questions are asked. At the Last Supper, this really pinnacle moment of Jesus with His disciples, Luke tells us that the dispute arises amongst them as to who is the greatest. You imagine the Last Supper. Jesus has just, at that point, taken off His robe and washed their feet. Who is the greatest? Not only that, Matthew tells us in chapter 20, verse 20, that the mother of James and John comes and asks Jesus that one of her sons would sit on the right of Jesus and one on the left in His coming kingdom. Now, some of you are teachers, and you have met parents like that, haven't you? I just wanted to to say that I know that the main parts in the school pantomime are being given out this week, and I'm really hoping that James and John would have a, a very important role. You know people like that. Because we can be ambitious not just for our children, but through our children. And so it seems that this strand of ambition and competitiveness and pride, because that's what it was, it was never far away from the disciple band. And what does Jesus do? Well, He gets a visual aid. Verse 2, He called a little child and had him stand among them. Now, you think about it, what is it about children that Jesus is drawing attention to? And as we said with the boys and girls, the ancient world thought of children with great affection, of course. Parents loved their children, but at the same time, they were thought of as being at the bottom of society. Children had future value if they could work in the family business, but at the time that they were children, they contributed nothing, and as children, they could only depend. They could take 
and receive, but they didn't contribute or give. And Jesus was drawing attention to the fact that they were the least of the least. And so they came with nothing, and they are therefore the perfect illustration of what it means to be humble, the humility that comes with having nothing of your own to bring. And so you see what he says, verse 3, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he says, here's what you need to be like, humble, in order to enter the kingdom, to become a Christian if you like, and here's what you need to be great in the kingdom, to keep going as a Christian, humility. You think about that, entering the kingdom. Remember, children don't have anything of their own to contribute, and Jesus says, here's how you're to come. You, 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 you come with, 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 with nothing, as one undeserves, as one undeserving, as, as one who knows that they have nothing to offer. Now, sometimes we sharpen this. We help our, ourselves to get to the, the nub of this by asking the question. You've heard me do this before. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would we say? Now, you see, if we were to say, well, I've been a good person, I, I, I've tried hard, I come to church, I read the Bible, I pray, none of those answers, you see, would show that we were coming like a little child. They would show that we did not believe ourselves to be those who had nothing. But if we're to say something like, well, I, I don't deserve to get into heaven, Lord, but, but Jesus has died, and my hope is not in, my, in me, but in Him. I'm depending upon what He has done. That's what it means to come like a little child, because we're depending not upon ourselves or anything that we have, but upon another. The old hymn writer put it well, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And you see that word change, unless this person changes and becomes like a little child, it literally means turn around or repent. In other words, this is not the way we naturally are. We naturally want to come to God on our terms and say something like, um, well, what has my goodness earned me? How much do I get for the life that I have lived? But Jesus says, no, come, come humbly. Come with nothing, admitting that you have nothing. And maybe you're here today, and this is a word for you. You've not yet come to Christ because you will not yet admit that you have nothing to contribute. You must look to the Lord Jesus Christ who, who has provided it all for you. But Jesus goes on, and it's this that we sort of want to concentrate on because this is the direction that Jesus takes it. And also, He says, humility is essential within the kingdom, not just getting in, but within. Therefore, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that humility is essential as a quality of the Christian life. And in this context, it is basic to good relationships within the kingdom, within the church. Now, you see, over these coming weeks, as we look at these verses of Matthew 18, there will be attitudes and actions described here that will help lead to harmony and unity within the fellowship. But, but key to all of this, a sort of a, a basic starting point, is a growing sense of humility amongst us as God's people. So, just a few basic points this morning. Why is humility vital? Why can we not achieve it by ourselves? And um, how can it be cultivated? 
So why is it vital? Well, it's, it's vital because it is seeing things as they really are. To be humble is to see things as they really are. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's, that's one definition. Honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. To, so, to, so, to be humble, you see, is to, to grasp how things are in God's universe, that He is great and that we are not, that He is infinite and that we are small. Winston Churchill had a, a great, very quick wit, you know, and, and he once described an opponent as a modest little man who had a good deal to be modest about. Now, you know what? That's the truth about all of us, isn't it? We have a good deal to be humble about. You see, the opposite of humility is pride, and pride is a, a deadly poison, but it's also an illusion because it's a false view of how things really are. Pride was the, the, the very first sin. Before even Adam and Eve, it seems that, that Satan became filled with pride. He looked at God's throne and he said, I deserve that. That would fit me. I deserve better than I am and better than I have. It was at the heart of Adam and Eve's sins. They thought that, that we know what is right and we know what is wrong. We are our own bosses. We are in charge. And of course, they were not in charge. John Stott says this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So, pride ruins our relationships with God, our relationship with God, because proud Christians, we know if we get proud, we don't feel as if we need God and we don't depend upon Him as we should. We don't turn to God in humility with outstretched, empty hands like the child that was standing amongst the disciples. And so, the Bible says, you see, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine that? God opposes the proud. It's very frightening. And yet, humility opens the door to God's grace. So, the Bible says in Isaiah 57, we read it at the beginning of the the service, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Pride destroys a relationship with God because God draws near to the humble. Pride also ruins our relationships with our brothers and sisters. We know this, doesn't it? Because pride, because it is not based on reality, it needs constant reinforcement because we're trying to think of ourselves as good people or as better people than we really are, and we, we, we tend to then use other people to bolster up this false image. So, we will look for compliments all the time. We will come across as needy and needing to be stroked. We will, we will not approach others thinking, how can we serve them, but how can we get affirmation from them? And that just destroys relationships. In addition, we will revel in other people's weaknesses because a knowledge of others' faults or feelings will enable us to think that, that, that we are doing better than they are, that we are upright and good. And so, we will revel in information about others that enables us to say, like the proud Pharisee that Jesus speaks about, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. That's often behind gossip, isn't it? 
the desire to find some moral high ground on which we may stand so that we feel good about ourselves. And all of this leads to a breakdown in relationships. One writer says, show me a church where there's division and where there's quarreling, and I'll show you a church where there's pride. And so the Bible just tells us again and again that our relationships are to be marked by humility towards one another. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Philippians 2, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, First Peter. So, humility is vital, you see, if we're to know God and we're to live in harmony with one another. That's why it's vital. Why can it not be achieved? Well, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just monitor ourselves and say, be humble, be humble, be humble? C.S. Lewis said that humility was not thinking about yourself less. It was not thinking about yourself at all. In other words, it was self-forgetfulness. But you see, if humility is self-forgetfulness, it will never be attained through continual self-monitoring. So, in the Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis imagines a discussion between two demons who are focusing their attention on a new Christian believer, and they're bemoaning the fact that this new believer has become very humble. And their strategy is to get him to look at his humility and then congratulate himself on his humility and say to himself, my goodness, look how humble I am. And suddenly, he's filled with pride, and then the whole thing comes crashing down. You see, humility is not attained and achieved by gazing at it at all. Our eyes need to be looking in a different direction. And that's where we're going to look now. How can it be cultivated? John Owen, great old English Puritan, helps us here. He says, there are two things that are suited to humble the souls of men. They are first a due consideration of God and of themselves. Of God, His greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority. Of ourselves in our mean and abject and sinful condition. In other words, as we think of the greatness of God and our own brokenness, humility flourishes. It's a, it's a byproduct. It's not a target as such. It's a byproduct of doing these other things. Now, how different this is from the world's prescription. The world tells us to talk ourselves up, to be positive, to affirm ourselves, to have a good self-image. It says to us, you can do anything and be anything that you want to be. You know that, that some of us have, have, have faced this. The modern self-esteem movement has been shaping education for 40 years. We're living with the fruit of that now. A whole generation of people, many of us, have been brought up hearing, you're the best. And look at the results. People are more broken than ever. Depression rates are higher than ever. Suicide is tragically common. And why? Because it is turned on its head, the Bible's teaching. It is saying to us, you are big and God is small. But you see, the truth is, God is big, and we are small. 
And so what we need to do is to look at ourselves through the lens of God's glory. We see ourselves as the small creatures of a vast God, unworthy servants of a great king. And, and, and oddly, paradoxically, there is a great freedom and joy in knowing that we are unworthy servants of a great king. And as we look at that king, and especially as we look at what he has done for us in the cross, humility flourishes. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. John Stott again, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross, Stott says, that we shrink to our true size. We're going to sing in a few minutes. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. You see, you can't be proud as you stand beside the cross. And so one of the secrets of humility is to never stray far from the cross of Christ. It should be often on our thoughts, often on our lips, often in our songs determining our actions, shaping our attitudes, captivating our affections. Very helped this week by a little book by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. It's, it's written on that subject, and he, he talks about a number of practices that really have helped this take some root in his own life. He talks about mornings and evenings. There's a few practical things for us just as we finish. He, he, he says that he, he wants his first thoughts of the day to be an expression of his dependence upon God, of his need for God, and of his confidence in the God. And really helpfully, he said that he realized that when he woke up in the morning, sin had not been sleeping. Isn't that a good thought? When he wakes up in the morning, sin has not been sleeping. It is not passive. It's right there, fully awake, ready to attack him. And that means also attacking him with the sin of pride. So he goes on the offensive, and he says things to God and reminds himself of things that, he is, that are true, and particularly that are true in terms of his dependence upon God. He quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. And so, he says, let's remind ourselves in the mornings that we are small and He is great, but we can be confident in Him. He speaks a lot about thankfulness. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. If we are proud, we will be ungrateful and unhappy. So, he says, regularly list what God has done for you. And as you, you do that, you'll, you'll be reminded, as Paul reminded the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? You'll know that God has been generous to you. Humility will flourish. In the evening, he, he talks about, about trying to avoid cosmic plagiarism. You know what plagiarism is, you students. Uh, you take somebody's work and you 
pass it, pass it off as your own. It's the bread and butter of third-level education, isn't it? And, and uh, uh, th th that's what you do. And uh, he, he says, I want to avoid cosmic plagiarism, uh, the, the idea of taking what is really God's and passing it off as our own. So you look back at your day and you think, I did that. Really? Whatever we did, we did it God's enabling. So he talks about consciously transferring the glory to God. All sorts of things that are so helpful to remind us that, that, that we are small. God is great, and we can be confident in Him. So, we've started this little journey through these subjects of relationships within the church. I pray that this will be helpful for us, that this will strengthen us. It will be health-giving for us. And it all starts here with a secret attitude in all of our hearts, humility. Not who is the greatest, but humble yourself like a little child. Nothing to bring, nothing to proclaim, everything to depend upon. Let's pray together. Lord, it is truly an odd thing for us to, to realize that, that we so quickly leave behind what we know is essential in becoming a Christian, to say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. We pray, Lord, that You will help us, whoever we are, to, to, to know that and to continue to know that, to know, Lord, that we are small, but You are great to know that we are limited, but You are infinite. Help us, Lord, to know our place, Your greatness, our humility, Your majesty. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.